Hey, hey everyone, okay, we've arrived. Let's finish off this series of lectures from the Collège de France titled The Punitive Society. Today we're going to cover chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, and the very short course summary at the end. You know the deal. Help me out if you'd like. Like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal. Uh, if you're just tuning into this, go check out episodes 1, 2, and 3, and all the other episodes I've done on Foucault, and you will be right as rain. Really add to your vast knowledge, and we will all flourish together. Yeah, let's jump into chapter 10 here. It's not really chapters. You know, these are all weeks. And I didn't mention that. Every chapter, quote-unquote, is a different week of the seminar that he was giving. <sighs> Doesn't matter. Does it? I don't know. So here he's going to first draw upon the work of someone by the name of Talji. Where it, in it, we see that society has been divided between the morally righteous and the immoral, people considered to be immoral and in need of correcting. So Talje, like the Quakers, appeals to the state to deal with these evil people. It's the state's responsibility to correct them, to fix them, to make sure that they aren't going to break the laws anymore. Now, before early 19th century, the entire working class was seen as such, almost as being immoral you know just generally working class people were seen as being bad and there were those exceptions like you had to work really hard and maybe you'd be considered like good in the eyes of your bourgeois overlords however with time overall this class started to really be associated with a possible virtue and it was those people who would break the law who would break the possibility of production by being idle by refusing to work, refusing to have kids, they would be seen as criminals, the thieves, the lazy people, the vagabonds, and the rest of the population, which is most of the working, mostly comprised of working class people, would then hate them because, you know, they aren't putting in the hard work to make everyone's lives easier. They're just benefiting while not returning anything. So penal theory in this, at this time seeks to police workers but to police their bodies to make sure that they're doing the right thing at any time that they're dressed the right way that they comport themselves the right way that hold themselves the right way that they don't have the wrong desires or too many desires that they are not influenced by the impurities of society like gambling like drinking that they are instead going to go to work for their 18 hours a day go home for three hours to sleep and show up again to work and this is exactly what would happen uh if you know capitalist influence ran rampant yeah, 18 16 hour working days absolutely no problem so if you're if you're hearing all this and you're like oh i didn't know that foucault paid so much attention to class of course we've all you'd be just prey to the fact that his the dominant interpretation of foucault is influenced by his published books not by the lectures but of course we see here a much closer consideration of class but still it's not it's not as though he's saying it is the one determining factor he's saying it's one among many alongside the repression of time alongside christian religious influence alongside this association of virtue with being moral which is associated with being a hard worker for foucault all these things work together so it's not as though there's one single explanation and this is something that i think a lot of marxists could benefit from in that they wouldn't repeat some of the injustices found within capitalism in their criticism of capitalism or in the alternatives that they draw. Not everyone, 
but in some cases it would be helpful to see how there are these other oppressive mechanisms at play. And if we don't consider them as well, then Marxism will only repeat them. It will produce what Baudrillard calls the mirror of production. So penal theory motivated by two outlooks, broadly. There was Beccaria's theory of universal penality, and then there was moralization theory. So in Foucault's words, he says that we see emerging discourse of criminology that assures the judicio-medical transcription that consists in describing as immature, maladjusted, and primitive the person penal theory described as social enemy. So sentencing would be framed as time needed for progress of social integration of the sick person. So it had to be a universal apparatus that was used to treat all of these quote-unquote sick people, but it was also something that had to justify itself by claiming to be a moralization progress. It would moralize people in the process. So it would be used to guarantee their social integration, or prisons were justified as a way to guarantee social integration. And that'll put us here very quickly into chapter 11. So because capitalist industry focused on profits, bad workers are a threat to those very profits. It would be considered illegal to slash off, to slack off, or refuse work or refuse to reproduce, like having kids. So laziness was not always treated like this, however, historically. Beforehand, it was a matter for artisans with apprentices and the state and police with non-working people to deal with. And it was only under the 19th century or under 19th century capitalism that laziness would be pathologized and punished to dissuade others from being lazy. So like, just to elaborate, like if you were an artisan with an apprentice or someone working for you, like of course you don't want them to be lazy, but it wasn't something that the state was going to intervene in to try to make sure that the entire social body is not being lazy. This would be like a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone, not like, and in, it, encouraging the deployment of an entire police system to make sure that people were not being lazy and were then getting in the way of the production process. So, of course, this necessitated increased surveillance of the working class, and they are forced uh, in order to encourage their further exploitation. And as we know from Marx, more exploitation is going to mean that people are forced into what he calls the Industrial Reserve Army. And the Industrial Reserve Army is a point by Marx, and I've done a single episode on this term alone. The Industrial Reserve Army refers to one of the natural movements of capitalism where it tries always to reduce the pool of wage earners. And the reason that it does this is because if there is um, a, a pool of working wage earners, sorry, which means that there is a broader pool of unemployed people. What this does is it means that the demand for workers is going to go down while the supply goes way up. And this is good because then capitalists can pay them even less because there are so many workers desperate for work because they live in a society in which they have been, their land has been taken, their ability to work for themselves has been taken, they're forced to work for someone else. This creates the conditions for people to be forced to work for even less in order to have a job at all. There's this there's this film about this, kind of about this. It's on the waterfront with, um, I think it's called On the Waterfront, with Marlon Brando, in which there's a scene where all of these dock workers are like fighting one another to get a day's work. And this is a very common 
occurrence. And the idea here is very much that uh, people are forced to combat against one another just to have a day's work, to earn a little money to feed themselves. And this creates the situation for people to be more nomadic. They got to move around to find more work somewhere else, which only increases their continued surveillance and policing because then they enter into the vagabond class. They are exactly what Adam Smith wanted. When Adam Smith wrote the, the Wealth of Nations, he was very clear that one of the benefits afforded by capitalism, and I mentioned this in the first episode, one of the benefits afforded by capitalism is to allow people to be free to work wherever they want. They aren't chained to a specific plot of land and working for a feudal lord. They can work anywhere. But Adam Smith didn't recognize the ways in which that this new moral system, this new moral penal system, would actually prosecute these types of people and how they would actually present a threat to the accumulation of capital and profit. Now, Marx, you know, in Marx's work, he rationalizes this by saying that this is a natural consequence of capitalism. It's going to reveal one of its contradictions and will eventually lead to a workers' revolt. But that's it's also very optimistic. It might not. It might lead to the complete destruction of our planet. But yeah, <laughs> not to be too gloomy about it. Anyway, so people are forced into a situation that requires more policing, more surveillance, more control. So the, one of the words for this, that is term that he ascribes to this is illegalism of dissipation. This is one of the illegalisms, one brand of illegality that is actually prosecuted. Whereas, as we've identified, many forms of illegality, illegality are cherished un, under the capitalist system. But illegalism of dissipation, which is just like laziness, presents a bigger threat than illegalism of depredation, like stealing, because it can be formed into a collective action through strikes and political parties, whereas you can't form a political party around stealing from someone else. You can do it by uh, advocating for strikes, for fewer working hours that you can form a collectivity around. So it was in the bourgeois interest to really crack down on just being lazy or being seen as being lazy because that presented a fundamental threat, an existential threat to the capitalist production process. So those places that were associated with the illegalism of dissipation, like laziness, would be associated with immorality. So, for example, like festivals, carnivals, bars, pubs, um, brothels, casinos, they would be seen as being immoral, sites that foster immorality. So more intense record-keeping and surveillance will manage the workers every waking moment to make sure that they're properly working. You got to clock in, you got to record the things you've done in your day, make sure that, you know, you aren't stealing company time, which is just to talk about this for a moment. This is something that the new tech economy and digital platforms, platform capitalism, as um, Nick Cernicek calls it, this is one way that capitalism actually circumvents this threat. Because with the new tech capitalism, it is able to give people money as a direct consequence of the work that they do. They aren't being paid to just be on the clock. They're being paid for every delivery they make, for every minute they're driving, like an Uber driver or something, which all of this does, you know, it might seem on the surface, oh, it's super easy for me, I can 
turn on my phone, I get in my car, I make a few bucks. But this is just uh, leading us down a road of the perfection of capitalist exploitation where your every single moment is recorded and tracked and you are being paid. The minimum you can be paid in order to keep the system afloat, you are being paid that minimum in order to, uh, to keep you working while extracting as much extra value from you as you are capable of giving. So we're really seeing the perfection of this system with these new tech platforms. And there were examples of this from way back, like Marx identifies as well that there were industries that emerged that would only pay people based off of the products that they made. Like how many shoes did you make in a day? And you'd be paid on that, not for the amount of time. You aren't paid for being there. So it's about the work that you do instead. But in this is also presented a possibility because what's to stop someone from running their own Uber business just away from like Uber? You have the car. You have a phone. What's to stop, um, you know, a collectivity of app makers to do one where people are actually earning the money from their fares that isn't going to a corporation, but maybe too radical. <laughs> radical. That's it's the most most lukewarm thought. I just called it radical. Jesus. Anyways, so people were being recorded. That's the baseline here. Every waking, moment, uh, every waking moment was being recorded, and this created a treasure trove of information for government agencies, sociologists, intellectuals, psychiatrists, psychologists, and knowledge-based institutions to record and understand people, and then apply this knowledge to other emerging fields to better understand how humans work, and to create a whole human science that could be used to justify increasing control over people by claiming that people can be understood and then controlled, which isn't to say uh, that they're actually learning anything useful about people as the, if there is like an objective way to understand people, but that this knowledge was being accrued for the sake of encouraging the accumulation of power, where instead of it being concentrated just among police and state officials, psychiatrists could then have it to justify their own occupation of a superior position in society and so many other possible people. And this all this does is it extends justice into daily life. Every single one of your moments are being policed. They're being watched, recorded. So you have to always be policing yourself. Interestingly, this period sees the power of judicial apparatus, like courts and judges, begin to decline as the judicial has been diffused into daily life. And this is the birth of the disciplinary society, where people are monitoring themselves. There's less need for these institutions, which I think that he overplays his point a little bit because they still very much exist. They're very prominent. But in any case, how they were exercised, at least presented in the previous series of lectures, began to go away. So how, though, did supervision and punishment exercise its operations? How did it work? And that'll put us into chapter 12. So he begins here by presenting what life was like in worker housing that was connected to one's workshop in 17th and 18th century France. And this was like the ideal situation for capitalists because workers never left. Their home was attached to work. So it's not like there was any justification for them not to show up. They were always being surveyed. They were always being watched. This was seen as a kind of utopia uh, of the factory barracks convent. 
religious influence would constantly monitor people on their free time, uh, which like the one day off Sundays, every other time, like they were mandated, like working 16 hour days, then they'd go home and have to pray. And then they would, you know, eat and their time, like no time for relaxation. Sunday would be like prayer, chores, like small window of time for, to relax, which would be monitored and then sleep. And then it all starts again. And so civil and industrial life merged together. Private and public life merged together. This was a kind of confinement before confinement, along with emerging schools, correctional institutions, asylums, and prisons. Constant monitoring, constant surveillance, where you had little mobility. Physical mobility, mobility of options, any, anything. The difference was that confinement was universal to a class or caste, like lower class people being forced into these positions, and didn't yet target people viewed as immoral. So it was treated as just like a blanket effort against the entire lower classes. Whereas the prison system would be more specified to those unsavory elements of those classes. So people, um, you know, it, it would be used against those people who are idle, who were lazy, who broke the rules, who were seen as immoral. So 19th century confinement wouldn't target entire groups. It would target people, specific people, people considered criminals who then came to constitute an entirely new group in themselves. So we live from confinement to confinement in our daily lives. That is, we go from one confined space to another, from schools to our homes, for, to work, to church whatever like if you if you're religious but at least talking about it at this time so our use is not to confirm a group's identity or to be mechanical workers the new confinement uses us to exist as multipliers of power as zones in which power is most concentrated and intense the point underwriting the capitalist influence, underwriting the religious influence, is power itself trying to exert itself in the most efficient way possible. And the Panopticon is within Discipline and Punish, the full book on this. The Panopticon is the primary form for this to work. It is the superior primary way. Uh, it is kind of the perfection of power. So this power works to maintain itself. It does this through surveillance and through the promise of universal homogenous punishment in a singular form, in the form of the prison. And this is very much seen like with the treatment of criminals themselves, where it's not really a matter of marginalizing. It's about removing people who've already been marginalized. Society creates the conditions for which that's, that society must respond to through power. It creates inequities that force people into situations that society deems to be unsavory, makes them do things that society doesn't like, which further justifies their exclusion, further justifies their occupying certain positions in society, making them easier to be exploited by industry, making them easier to be sent to prisons to justify the exertion of power and power's place, and so on. It is meant to transmit knowledge, normalization, and production, and really to normalize all of these things, to normalize 
their treatment and to normalize power. The system's key claim is to demarginalize. All the while, like it's saying, hey, we aren't doing this for bad. We're doing this to be benevolent. We're going to correct people. We're going to make them better for society when all that's really going on is just marginalization for the sake of marginalization to encourage power, to intensify power, and to keep the marginalization machine machine going. And when all this fails, when institutions that are seen as being more benevolent fail, like hospitals, like asylums, when they fail, then they send people to prison or give them the death penalty is almost like a last resort. And there's a whole constellation then of institutions that work together here. There's schools, hospitals, prisons, and they are all micro states. They are all microscopic examples of state systems that work to correct people and work by exerting punishment on people to make them prime for control or to prime them for control. God, words are hard today. I'm sorry. And these institutions will call upon the state itself and it, its many arms, like the police, like the army, to help make sure that people stay in line and that people are properly distributed into the institutions they're meant to go in so that they're better, best organized. Like, how much time is that person going to get in prison? Is that person better suited for uh, a hospital or for a prison? Is that person better suited for forced labor or for community service or a prison? And so on. You need this kind of dividing or this separating apparatus at play to divide people, to organize them, to coordinate where they will move. And he calls this sequestr sequestration, to sequester, to limit their possibilities, to confine them, not only to each of these institutions, but to confine them to institutional life itself so that they're just totally at the whim of a state that's blowing them around in any direction it sees fit. So under capitalism, sequestration has three functions. Number one, the employer's total acquisition of time and general control over time. It makes sure that people are mandated and controlled according down to the minute so that they do not deviate from that. The second function is whereas under feudalism, the task was to capture people to a specific place Capitalism doesn't mind if people move so as they follow the established rhythms of society. So you could move around as long as you still wake up at your scheduled time to work and you show up to work and work that whole time. You are not chained to a specific plot of land and you, know, you just have to work there for a feudal lord. So this signals that even those vagabonds, even people who move around, can be seen as acceptable so long as they adhere to the standardized rhythms of life under this system. Oops, I misspoke. That was all number one. That was the first function uh, under the capitalist system. The second function, that is in, in, in institutions like schools and hospitals, they take on disciplinary attitudes. Schools aren't just about learning. That They claim to be about that, and that's one part of it, but it's also about teaching people, socializing kids how to properly act in society. Just as hospitals aren't just about treating people and curing people's illnesses, they, are, they, all, they both strive to control existence. The purpose in both of these examples, like in schools and hospitals, is to make sure that inst institutionalized people aren't too separated from society and form their own collectivity. 
Now, what he means by this, and it's such an interesting point, is that like in schools, you don't just learn key information like facts or how to do math or anything like that. You're also taught proper conduct. You're taught how to sit and behave like a good kid. How uh, how do you get your pudding if you don't eat your meat as, you know, from Pink Floyd or like there's that Super Tramp song school where it's like, uh, God, how does it go? After school's over, no playing in the park. Don't be out too late. Don't let it get too dark. Don't let don't hang out and learn what life's about. Grow up just like them instead and let then you work it out. The idea being that these institutions are meant to teach people how to properly conduct themselves. They teach people how to be upstanding citizens. Similarly in hospitals. Hospitals aren't just about curing people. I have so many friends, uh, so many women friends, who go to the hospital or go to the doctor, and they will come out of it having a saying that their doctor just told them to like lose weight or something, which has absolutely no connection to whatever ailment they might have. And to me, this is just a sign of the ways in which these institutions do more than what they claim on the surface. They are also institutions meant to maintain regulation within the social body to make sure people don't step out of line, that they are properly obedient like in schools, and that hospitals teach people that they have to correspond with an ideal image of a body type to be thin, for example, to make sure that you embrace all the proper virtues of uh, acceptable life acceptable self-presentation the other thing that he mentions in schools is that it at, at the time when he's writing about it he was thinking about the ways in which schooling prohibited sexuality learning about sexuality still something very much true to this day but it was a very interesting situation because in the case of boarding schools where you just be placed among people of your similar gender like in the case of boys schools there was both a an interesting prohibition of heterosexuality by virtue of being only among boys, but also of homosexuality. So just a broader control of homosexuality, of, of sexuality itself, but that exerted itself more strongly against homosexuality because that was a more present threat there, or that that was a more likely possibility given that boys would just be among boys, which is definitely an interesting historical phenomenon. Now, the third one, the third function, is to impose a hierarchical structure to maintain a norm. Not the good, the perfect, or virtuous, but just the normal. And this normal takes on a quality that is different than the virtuous in previous settings. So this new disciplinary society does not necessarily claim to bring people closer to God. It has attained a critical mass in order to then justify itself for the sake of justifying itself as a norm, where a norm is what manages and makes sure that people are going to live their best lives, and anyone who deviates from it is a problem. So if someone deviates from it, they're presenting a threat to you, to everyone else, and the normal, easy life they live with having the big house and the fence and the 2.3 kids and so on. And that's going to put us here into the final chapter, chapter 13, before the course summary. So why prisons then? They emerged somewhat spontaneously. Like, what? why prisons and why not something else? 200 years ago, they weren't really effective in reducing the number of criminals or fixing them. So why'd they stick around? 
like people knew at the time too that they weren't effective they were costly they were you know they they didn't do anything people were like why why are these things going up and why are they sticking around well foucault sort of hypothesizes that it could be because the prison was the perfect microcosm of these new efforts to control the entire social body through a panoptic kind of surveillance where the prison was a way by which to extend that social control into punishment itself where punishment could then be perfectly aligned with uh, these new kinds of control and the other developments at the time reveal that uh, the prison is more than a building it is a social form of control where there's increased power of the bourgeois in an age where power has been distributed uh, kind of throughout the whole social body where everyone fights in in war for power a kind of war of all against all where everyone has a stake in power therefore there's all you know people can combat one another there's all these struggles going on all the time it's also a situation in which the state assumes a new kind of administrative power to help coordinate other powerful institutions make sure people are sent to where they need to go that institutions are working harmoniously with one another there's also uh it's also a time in which power constitutes rather than maintains dominant mode of production through control of time for capitalism to flourish so the idea is that this power is not determined by a new emerging political system like uh, economic system like capitalism it is that capitalism is actually able to draw upon these new forms of control this control through uh, state power that is distributed through the social body and the repression of time capitalism can jump on that wavelength and then use those logics to control its workers to make sure that workers are showing up on time because how can you have a working class if these people are not already prepared to occupy that role that requires them to be subjects to to reduced to a state of like pure mechanical uh laboring unless there were all of these other things going on as well so power was necessary to transform people's time and effort into labor power this is also a period in which violence is hidden away from view and operates through knowledge at the level of ideology so power and knowledge become bound up here where there's now an emerging management knowledge tracking people taxes people's debts a knowledge of inquiry where you track people's movements their health the state's gdp there's also a police inquisition or a police knowledge where agents of power keep records of evildoers becoming agents of knowledge other powerful people like teachers that take on the roles of socializing people training them to be proper citizens there is the effort to quantify people's skill knowledge behavior with easily conveyable numbers reducing them to stats and figures percentages so they can be better understood now the point of all of this in the disciplinary society is to foster the habit that links individuals to production apparatus which like i've been clear about is not the determining factor it is a consequence of other factors now a key term here is habit where Foucault says that as opposed to a contract, like a social contract that binds people with the same wealth and power, habit joins people across classes, religions, political views, etc. It is the standard for normalization. In order to keep people 
to unite people that might otherwise have been separated and to provide the semblance of equality, of egalitarianism in a system that is definitely not. So the state had to stop conducting like public executions because that is too much of a demonstration of power. It had to instead lock people up in prisons, in asylums, and make sure that they couldn't necessarily speak with the outside world, or if they did, that their words would be filtered through that institution, where the doctor would say, oh, they're just being crazy, uh, don't listen to them, or the prison guard would say, oh, of course a criminal would say that, like, don't have to listen to them. And with this, we see the way that power and knowledge become wrapped up with one another, how they connect, how they work together, how power works through knowledge to justify itself because of knowledge's exalted status in our world. If you're an expert, you know, your words are seen as being more superior than anyone else's. But interestingly, I think that we're seeing this start to turn, uh, especially with like what we saw with COVID and the spread of misinformation and the spread of anyone's perspective being as valuable as anyone else's. So like doctors trained medical professionals were being challenged by randos on the internet who have no idea what they're talking about. And I think that this signals the extent to which that we don't submit quite as neatly to this power knowledge continuum that Foucault establishes. And I'd love to hear what other people have to say about it, but that there are other effects at play here. There are other strands of thought and other powerful incentives and interests that also guide this beyond just power knowledge and i guess it'll all, always come back to power but the attachment to knowledge as we understand it is um not quite how foucault does maybe it, maybe it's that you know even those even like a conspiracy theorist has to draw upon certain has to do certain things to attain some degree of legitimacy they still have to use evidence as you know as un um, unreliable that evidence might be, they still have to use evidence to justify their point. Maybe that's still an adherence to knowledge. Anyways, whatever. I'd love to hear what you have to think about it. But in all of this, we see that normalizing discourse through sequestration that he lays out, uh, this is all to instill a fundamental societal adherence to the play of power itself. And that'll put us here finally into the course summary. So in the class, which is just a review of the main points, so I'm not going to go through all of it. I'm just going to give out the points that I think accurately capture the essence of the text so that you can end off here knowing, having a nice little review. So in the classical age, there were four main penal tactics. There was expulsion. There was financial compensation, what he called redemption from the first episode, or like... Um, kind of like marking, like, you know, um, besmirching someone's name. There was also bodily inscription, and then there was confinement. Where he, And he identifies the different societies corresponded to these more neatly, where he says that Greek society used expulsion a lot. Germanic societies used financial compensation a lot. Western societies used bodily inscription a lot. And then finally, he says that in the present-day 20th century society, Perhaps ours is a society of confinement. We rely on this a lot. So even when prisons first emerged, they were criticized for not actually improving people's lives and contributing to recidivism. 
or they, they did contribute to recidivism, people to repeat their crimes again. Where Foucault says that the delinquency effect produced by the prison becomes the problem of delinquency to which prison has to provide a suitable response. Prisons create the conditions that they are the only ones capable of responding and correcting. So prisons and the, all the logics that surround prisons create this category of the delinquent that the prison and all of these institutions have to correct, which we see a vicious cycle emerging here, where delinquents are created by prisons, or their logics, that they must correct, and we see it continue ad infinitum, forever. And this births the psychology of the subject, which, drawing upon all these new forms of record keeping, of data collection, can be used to better understand people, at least in accordance with how they want to be understood by these powerful institutions, which can then be spread out through the social body, it can be used to then justify even more stringent control of these people. And yeah, that'll wrap that up, the punitive society. That's third series of lecture, lectures down. If there's anything I got wrong, anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, if you agree, let me know. Tell me what you think. I'd love to hear about it. And yeah, on that note, take care.